So that is exciting, and that is again is a part of the worship we do here at Refinery. We don't just worship through uh, what we just did. We worship in all aspects of our lives, and that is a part of it, so we are glad to do that um, with, with you all. And I'm just glad that you're here with us tonight. Um, this is a little different than how we normally start it, so I'm trying to figure out how I want to start this thing. Um, like I said, we are in, um, or we're doing our, wor- our worship gathering right now, and this is the time where we worship. And it's not just worship through praise and song, although that is a big part of our service. A part of worship is, is reading God's Word together. And so we're going to do that. If you have a Bible, open with me to the book of Ephesians. That's where we're going to be studying tonight. We are in a series we began last week called Ephesians Therefore. And in this series, we are looking at the letter of Ephesians. It's a letter written by Paul to the church in Ephesus. And in this letter, Paul gives the first half a bunch of doctrine, um, essential things we need to know about Christ. And the second half gives us practical ways to apply that doctrine. And so we get to see that in this letter, and we're going to see that over the course of this series. And last week, as we began this sermon series, we began by reading a portion of chapter 1, and the essential doctrine we read about was the Holy Trinity, the Holy Trinity. And the Holy Trinity was found in in a short poem that Paul opened with, where we saw three different examples of how the Holy Trinity has a has a role to play in salvation. And Paul explained to us all that all this looked like. We saw how the first role is the role of the Father, God the Father, and he plays an important role by creating the plan for salvation. He's the one that gave us the plan for how to save humanity. Then you had God the Son, Jesus Christ, and he played a very important role. His role was to come and accomplish the climax of that plan by dying, resurrecting, and ascending. He saved us from our sins through his own sacrifice, through sacrificing himself. And finally, as we saw in the poem, we see the role of the Holy Spirit. And he comes along after Jesus, after Jesus ascends to heaven, and his role is current. His role is to guide us, guide us through life, ultimately guide us towards glorification. Now, there are more than just those three examples, but that's what Paul gives us. And it points to the fact that God is going to bring himself glory. In fact, we summarized last week that God is sovereign. He's in control. He's done every part of this plan on his own, and we bring him glory today because of it. But that was last week. That was chapter 1. Tonight, we're going to begin this service with chapter 2. And so if you have your Bibles, open with me to chapter 2 specifically. And I want to open by reading for you verse 4. Let's read verse 4 together. This is what verse 4 says. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. But God. Now, as you can see, I have intentionally went over verses 1 through 3. I I skipped those three verses. And there's a reason for that. Two reasons, actually. The first reason is I want you to see verse 4 first. I'll read it for you again because there's a piece of of, uh, information you need to see first. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love in which he loved us. But God, in rich, rich in mercy. One of the core doctrines that we're going to see tonight is God's mercy. Our God is a merciful God. He loves us and provides us mercy. That is one of the essential things we know about our Lord. And when you fully appreciate that truth, 
when you fully appreciate the fact that our God is merciful, it should bring you to your knees in humility. It should. Full appreciation of that truth that our God is merciful should truly humble us. But as you can imagine, and as we see today in this world, rarely does that go fully appreciated. Even within the church, God's mercy is not always fully appreciated. And I believe there's a reason for that. And the reason is that we skip verses 1 through 3. Symbolically, we skip to verse 4 and neglect verses 1 through 3. And I'll read you those verses and show you what I mean. Here's how Paul opens this chapter. Verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Verse 4 shows us an essential doctrine of God, of his mercy and love for us. And as I mentioned, that should be something that humbles us. And I think it truly humbles us when we understand and appreciate verses 1 through 3. What do I mean by that? I mean that 1 through 3 shows us why we need mercy in the first place. And if we don't understand why we need mercy, then God's mercy doesn't mean anything to us. It doesn't have any weight why do you need mercy if you don't understand the need for mercy in the first place? You know, when I was very young, I think I was around eight years old, I was living with my mom and my sister. My mom was a single mother. She was a school teacher, so as you can imagine, there wasn't a lot of extra money going around in our, in our household. But eight years old, I didn't know that. I had no idea our financial situation. I didn't know what was going on in our household. And at eight, for whatever reason, I had this fascination with rubber bands. Again, I don't know why, but for whatever reason, I loved rubber bands. And I had this giant one, this huge rubber band at home that I would play with. And again, eight-year-old mind, here's what I did. Don't recommend it. One evening at home, my mom is in the living room. I'm in our dining room. And I took this giant rubber band. I stuck it onto our thermostat. And I thought, or I was trying to figure out if I could yank this rubber band hard enough, I could get it onto the door handle in our dining room. Now, as you can imagine... That did not work. Instead, what happens is I, I pull this rubber band as hard as I can, and it takes our thermostat clean off the wall, and it shatters the thermostat onto the floor. Now, I knew I was going to get in trouble for this. There was no mistake. I was aware I'd made a mistake. However, my mom reacted differently than I expected her to react. She came in, yes, angry, but she also came in crying. She was crying. And at eight years old, I had no idea why. I didn't understand what she was feeling. Now, as an adult, I do know. She shared this with me. She couldn't afford to fix that thermostat. She didn't have any extra money to fix the thermostat I just broke. And at eight years old, I didn't understand. I didn't get the mistake I just made. I knew I made a mistake, but it didn't fully, or I didn't fully comprehend it. Now, if my mom would have come in that room that night and you know, started berating me and saying, you need to appreciate me more, you need to show appreciation, all I do for you, I make so many sacrifices for you and you don't get it, you don't appreciate me, I wouldn't understand. At eight years old, I didn't understand the, the cost it takes to raise me. I didn't understand what rent was. I didn't understand how much it cost to keep our, our, our uh, food there in our fridge. I didn't get it. All I knew is I made a mistake. Now, as an adult, having to pay my own bills, having to stock our pantry, I can look back to my mom's sacrifices and appreciate them more. 
I can actually look to her and be grateful for the sacrifices she made. I know how much it cost to raise me. And I know that she made sacrifices for me. But it took an understanding of all it takes to raise me for me to truly appreciate the sacrifices she's done for me. And it's exactly what we see here with God. If we skip to verse 4, and we only talk about God's mercy, we only talk about God's love, but we never acknowledge our own sin, we never acknowledge our own brokenness, we never acknowledge how much mercy we actually need, you will never fully appreciate the mercy you've been given. And so when we see verses 1 through 3, we see exactly how Paul describes us as human beings. And I'm going to break it down for you. Verse 1, and we were dead in the trespasses and sins. That word trespass gives us the inclination that we've broken a barrier, we've crossed a line. Essentially, we've rebelled, that we have rebelled against God. That word sin, you've heard it a lot, it just means you've missed the mark. You've failed God. You've done something wrong. So in verse 1, we're already seeing that we're rebels and we're failures. Then you go into the next verses. Where have we gone? What have we rebelled against? We've rebelled against God. What are we chasing? We're chasing the course of this world. We're going after the world, and the world is going in the wrong direction. We're chasing the opposite of God. We even see here that we're chasing our own flesh, our own selfish desires, what we want, not what God wants. And so in short, three short verses, we see Paul explain that we are failures, we are rebels, we are selfish and arrogant, and we think everything for ourselves, we're chasing after the world. And if I ended with verse 3, and that was the end of tonight's message, that would be a very dark closing. But then we move to verse 4. And verse 4 is where the hope comes in. And verse 4 is where we actually begin to appreciate God and God's love, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. I cannot stress enough for you the importance of taking time and truly understanding verses one through three. Not just reading them and moving on, but truly understanding them. In fact, I'm gonna be really honest with you because this is something I've seen far too often that not to mention. Too many of my friends too many of uh, people I used to work with. There are pastors I know, or who used to be pastors I know, who love to preach on verse 4. They love to preach on God's mercy. I have friends who love to talk about God's mercy and God's love. They were all about it. They're the same people who would say things like, well, we don't really need to talk about sin. Why do we need to talk about it? We, we, God loves us. Yes, God loves us, but if you do not understand that he loves you despite your sin, you will never cling to his love. This might sound harsh, but it has, to be, it has to sound harsh. If you love you more than God loves you, you won't care much about God's love. If you love you more than God loves you, you'll never care about his love as much as you actually think you do. Now, in reality, you can never love yourself more than God. God loves you immeasurably. But if you think you love yourself all this much, and then you're like, oh, God loves me? Great, I love me. Look at us. We both love me. That's great. No, it's then saying, Lord, actually, I don't know if I'm that lovable. God, am I? Why do you love me? When you begin to have that posture and look to God and say, why are you showing me mercy? Why do you love me so much? That love becomes something you cling to, not something you appreciate. And so when we read verse 4, we have to appreciate God's love and God's mercy because we are not very lovable sometimes. 
but God loves us and God shows us mercy despite that. And that's why those words at the beginning of verse 4 mean so much, but God being rich in mercy. Those words, but God, I think could summarize the rest of tonight's message. Everything I'm going to say tonight could be summarized in those two words, but God. Because as we've already seen, verses 1 through 3 show us our need for mercy, show, our, show us our need for him and his love. And then everything we're going to see for the rest of tonight's message is, but God. Here's what God does despite our rebellion. Here's what God does despite our lack of appreciation for his love. Here's what God does even though we have failed him. But God. In fact, the rest of tonight's message is in, is in verses 4 through 10. We're going to read the rest of 4 through 10. And in those verses, we're going to see that despite our rebellion, God still does a work in us and through us. And that's what we're going to focus on tonight. Even going a little bit more specific, what we're going to see is God's work for us, God's work in us, and God's work through us. That's what the rest of tonight's message is going to look like. Let's start with God's work for us. What is, what is God's work for us? We'll find that in verses 4 through 7, and you can read those with me. Verses 4 through 7 of chapter 2 say this, But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By, see, by, uh, by grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul does something here that is really fascinating to me. In these short verses, 4 through 7, Paul, again, shows us the work he's doing for us. But he shows us the work he's doing for us in the past, in the present, and in the future. The work God's doing for us, he shows us in the past, present, and future. And I'll show you exactly where you see this here in these verses. The first one, let's look at our past. What has God done for us in the past? Well, here's what Paul has to say. It's here in verses, verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. There once was a current or a previous dead state. That's what Paul's saying. Previously, you were dead. You were dead spiritually. You were dead because you were in your trespasses and sins. That's your previous state as a believer. But what's really cool about what Paul says here, it's not just that you were once dead in your past. Again, remember what I said last week. We are reading a letter that was written to the church in Ephesus, meaning that Paul is writing to believers. His audience is other believers. And so what Paul is communicating here is that at one point you were dead spiritually. That is in your past. But also, because you believe in Jesus Christ, your past also includes a spiritual revival. You were once dead, but now you've been raised up in Christ. You are spiritually alive. That is what Paul is saying. And, and here, I'm assuming I'm speaking to believers as well. You were once dead, and now you are alive. Spiritually, you have been raised with Christ, in Christ. Now, if you have not said yes to Christ, if you've not submitted to his authority, then your past only includes your dead state. But to the believer, to the one who should be receiving this letter, the past includes a dead state and a spiritual revival. That's what God has done for us. Through Christ, we have access to a spiritual re revival. But there's also a current state of the believer. 
What has God done for us currently? Or what is he doing for us currently? We see this here in these verses as well. I believe it's verse 6. It says, And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Notice the words that Paul uses here. Raised and seated. These are not future tense words. These are not words that you would describe the future raised and seated describe the present if you summarize this it's currently the christian has been raised up and is currently seated with him in the heavenly places now you might hear that and it might sound a bit confusing it was for me when i first read this how can we be currently seated with christ in heaven how can that be possible? If we're here now, how can we be currently seated with Christ in heaven or in the heavenly places? But notice how Paul words this because it's very important. He does not say with Christ. He says in Christ. That word in means a lot to our understanding of this verse. It's not with Christ. It's in Christ. Now, I'm sure many of you have seen a passport before. I couldn't find mine for this night. I don't know where mine went. I have a passport, as I'm sure many of you do. And I've had the privilege in my life to travel a lot. When I was younger and in, in college, I had the privilege to travel a lot. I've traveled to London, to Europe. I've traveled to Costa Rica, to Cuba, to the Bahamas. I've traveled a lot for how young I am. And every time I've traveled, I've had to take my passport with me. I've had to go to the airport, and when I get to that country, I get a stamp in my passport that says the current country I'm in. I'm in. So if I'm in the Bahamas, I get a stamp. If I'm in Europe, I get a stamp. I have to be stamped into that country because that is the country I'm visiting. But as you know, if you've had a passport or seen a passport, it doesn't matter what stamp is in the, in the passport. What is the stamp on the passport? It's the stamp of the United States. And that one is not a stamp. It is ingrained in the passport because it is a United States passport. That is my citizenship. That's where I reside. And so even though I'm in Europe, even though I'm in England, I'm a citizen of the United States. That doesn't change my citizenship because of where I'm at. I get to be an American citizen even though I'm visiting Europe or visiting the Bahamas or wherever I might be. In fact, Paul, in another letter he wrote during this time while he was in prison, talks about this citizenship concept. He says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from, from it we await our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul, in another letter, talks about citizenship specifically, saying, Hey, you have a new citizenship. That citizenship is in heaven. Meaning that we as believers are visiting this country. We're visiting this world. We're no longer residents here. We're residents of heaven. We're visiting here. This is a temporary location in which we live. Now here in Ephesians, though, Paul is not talking about citizenship. At least he doesn't reference it directly. But I still think this passport analogy works. And I'll explain it with a story. I want to preface this story, especially for the teens in the room. I, I do not endorse anything I did in this story at all. In fact, it's a kind of an embarrassing story to share, but I, I'll share it anyway. I said I, I've, been, I've traveled a lot, and when I was 18 years old, I got the chance to travel to England. Now, when I was 18, and when I traveled to England, it just so happened to be the weekend of July 4th, meaning that an 18-year-old guy was in 
England during July 4th weekend. And I don't know if you've seen what they do on July 4th. They don't really celebrate the way we celebrate that holiday. It's not really a, a big one for them. Now, not only was it July 4th weekend, but it also was the same weekend that the United States was playing England in the World Cup. And so me, Caleb, 18 years old, got to go to England on July 4th weekend. On the same weekend, they were playing the United States in the World Cup. And I will say I have never once watched a soccer game in my life. I had never had any interest in soccer. I played it for a few years. I never scored a goal, and I left. I was done with soccer. So I did not care about soccer at all. However, on July 4th weekend in England, while we're playing them in the World Cup, you would have thought I was the biggest soccer fan that has ever existed. And I had the bright idea to go with my mother to a pub in England for the World Cup in all-American gear, and every time they scored a goal, I was screaming at the top of my lungs, USA, USA, USA. It was just my mother and I who were United States fans on that weekend, and it did not help that we beat them on July 4th in the World Cup, and I was the most hated individual in that pub at all. Now, if you heard that story, if you were in that room, you did not have to see my passport to know I identified as an American. It was pretty clear that I was an American, because that's who I identified with. That was my identity. Now, that passport shows I'm an American, but, where, but it was clear that I identified as one. And it's the same here with our identity in Christ. Paul is talking about our identity in Christ. It doesn't matter where you're at. You identify with Christ, and therefore, wherever you are, it's going to be clear your identity is in him. And so when it says that you are seated in him, in Christ, it's not saying currently you're in the heavenly places. It's not saying currently you're not here any longer. No, you are here but your identity is in Christ. And where is Christ? Christ is in the heavenly places. So where is your identity? It's in the heavenly places. You identify with him in heaven, awaiting his return, and so your identity is there, not here. When you live on this world, not only is your citizenship no longer American, no longer the United States, your identity is no longer in the United States. Your identity is in Christ. And when you leave this country or you go anywhere, you go into town, your identity should be clear that you are not just an American, but you are a Christian. That is where your identity is founded. And so that is the current state of the believer. The current state of what God has done for us is that he's given us an identity in Christ. Christ is in the heavenly places, and so is our identity. So we've seen the past, we've seen the present, now we see the future. What is God going to do for us in the future? That's in verse 7. In the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. God's continued future work is to bring himself more glory by offering us immeasurable, immeasurable amounts of grace and kindness through his son, Jesus Christ meaning that we get to praise God forever because of what Christ did for us on the cross. Because of what he's done, God can give us mercy, 
And because of that mercy and grace and kindness, we get to bring him more and more glory. And I love the way Charles Spurgeon writes it. He, he uh, wrote a commentary on verse 7, and here's what he had to say to summarize what verse 7 has to, what it's saying. Charles Spurgeon writes, When all the saints shall be gathered home, they shall still talk and speak of the wonders of Jehovah's love in Christ Jesus. And in the golden streets, they shall stand up and tell what the Lord has done for them to listening crowds of angels and principalities and powers. In summary, as believers, as, as those who put our authority in Christ, we get the privilege to for, forevermore here and in heaven, bring God glory and tell stories of the grace God's provided us because of what Christ did for us on the cross. And we get to share and brag on our Lord because he has brought us glory or brought us mercy that we could never have earned on our own. And Charles Spurgeon writes it so beautifully that it is us who get to bring forevermore glory for what God has done through us or for us in his son, Jesus Christ. So as, as I've already shown you, verses 1 through 3 is God reminding us of our need for his mercy. Verses 4 through 7, which is what we just read, shows us that God is working for us. And now in verses 8 and 9, we're going to see how God is working in us. So read with me verses 8 and 9. Here's what they have to say. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. I cannot express to you the importance of those words in verse 9. There is no way I can communicate how important those words are, but I'm going to read them again. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, have you ever heard this phrase? I've said it, so I'm not shaming anybody. I've said this. I'm sure you said this. Have you ever heard someone say, I have accepted Christ into my heart? No shame, I've said it. This is what a lot of people say. But I have to say, it could not be more inaccurate to what truly occurs. It is not us accepting Christ. It is Christ accepting us. We have been accepted by our Lord and Savior through what he did on the cross. And when we fully recognize that, it changes who we are. It changes how we, how we live. And verse 9 here points to that. We cannot boast when we have nothing we've done to bring us, this, or bring us this salvation. There's nothing we can do in this room to say, well, I, I did X, Y, and Z. No, you didn't. You've done nothing. I've done nothing. Gary's done nothing. Nobody's done anything in this room to deserve salvation, yet we've received it. Not from our own works, but from Christ's works. And when I say this is important, I cannot express how important it is. Because it's the reason why all of us in this room can come here on equal footing. Do you understand that? I cannot come up here with pride as if I'm holier than you. Because guess what? I'm not. You can't come here thinking, well, I'm just the holiest one in the room. So I, I can tell people how to live. I can tell people how to, how to do life. Because, you know, they, they should be thanking me that I'm in this church because I'm, I'm so holy. No, you can't do that because you're not. I'm not. None of us are. We are all on equal footing. All should be humbled to look more like Christ because he's the one that's done work through us. And because of that work through us, because of the work he's done for us, we have salvation. It has nothing to do with us, not our works. None of us can boast. None of us can act like we're the ones that did this because none of us did. And we get to just offer our lives over to him because that is what he's doing in us. 
In fact, if I could summarize what God's doing in us, it would be the word humility. Every single one of us should be humbled by the fact that we have done nothing to earn this salvation. And a single one of us can act like we're the ones that have done it because we haven't. And so if I had to describe it, it would be humility. And that humility is so important to your spiritual growth. Because when you come here with humility, it changes how you experience this gathering. It changes how you experience life. When you walk in here with humility, you actually get to leave here with God working on you. If you came here boastfully, thinking I have it figured out, you're not going to experience what God wants to do in your life. But when you come here with a humble posture and saying, Lord, what do you have for me? It changes how you experience this. I'd put it this way. If you're not humble enough to hear hard things, you're not going to receive the refinement you're looking for. If you're not humble enough to come and sing praises to God, then you're not coming to worship. If you're not humble enough to actually come here and learn or open your Bible at home and learn, then you're just coming to get more affirmation that you are already right. But instead, what if, instead of coming to this thinking, well, what can this Bible tell me that I'm good at today? What can this book show me how good I am today? What if we instead came to it saying, Lord, how can you challenge me today? How can I be challenged this evening? In fact, as we gather here, it, it reminds me of our namesake, and we now have this beautiful sign out front that shows it in, in um, bright letters. We are a refinery church. And what does that word refine mean? It's not, it's not a word that means you come here, and every, every time you come here, you're going to hear exactly how great you're doing. What, is, what happens when you're refined? There's pressure. There's challenging. A refinement takes work. And when you go through that work, you're going to come out better than you started. And so as a church, one of our core values is that we are going to gather and it's going to change how we live. We're going to live more and more like Christ. And when that is how you live, it's going to take challenging. It's going to actually change how you see the world. What if we gathered here every week and when we opened our Bibles together... We didn't listen to the pastor, listen to whoever's speaking, and think, oh man, everything he's saying is exactly what I believe too. What if, instead of listening for the things we agree with, we listen for the things that challenge our belief? I'm not saying you should take my word for the gospel. Test everything I say upon scripture. But if you hear me say something that challenges your beliefs, and then you open your Bible and it's confirmed by the scripture we've read, and it's not the Bible that needs to change, it's you. And when you allow it to change you and, and actually humble yourself, it's going to do a refinement in your life and you're going to change for the better. And as believers, we want to be changed for the better. That is who we are. What, is, what God is doing in us currently is humbling us. And that's what we see here in verses eight and nine. And so again, to summarize, verses one through three is God reminding us of our need for his mercy. Verses 4 through 7 is God showing us his work for us. We moved into 8 and 9 where we see God's work in us. And finally, we're going to close with verse 10 where we're going to see God's work through us. And let's see what God has to say or what Paul writes about this in verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
Now notice, this is only one verse. Paul spends the least amount of time talking about this. And there's for good reason. Again, as we've talked about humbling ourselves, Paul spent way more time talking about God's work for us and through us, or for us and in us, than he did talking about his work through us. There's a reason for that, because he's doing the bulk of the work. He's the one that's sovereign. He's the one in control. He's the one doing the bulk of the work. However, there is a job that we have, and we see this in verse 10. For we are his workmanship. That's a core word here. Essentially, we are his creation. He's created us. We are his masterpiece. As Christians, we are his masterpiece. As, or as his creation, we are his masterpiece. And you might not always feel like a masterpiece, but God considers you one. You are his masterpiece. And because you are his masterpiece, he wants to work through you. And he works through you in Christ Jesus. Again, remember, everything has been in Christ Jesus. You are working in, or your work, your work is through him in Christ Jesus. And notice here when he brings up good works, well, when, when he brings up good works, he brings up good works after he talks about Christ. Because everything we do must be through Christ. Have you ever heard the term moralist? The word moralist, the term moralist, is someone who do, does good things for their own benefit or for their own motives. I mean, you do good things, you don't want to speed because you don't want to ticket. You don't murder someone because you don't want to get in trouble. Or you maybe, I don't know, greet at church because you want a good pat on the back. Maybe you serve in the cafe because people are going to show appreciation for you. If that's the posture you do things, you're a moralist. It's all about what you can get out of this work. I'm doing this good thing because people here like that good thing. Or I'm, I'm doing this good thing because I don't want to get in trouble from these authorities. You're basing it off of your own motives, your own desires. But what we see here in verse 10 is not about our own motives, our own desires. It's through Christ Jesus, meaning that everything we do as believers, even the things we don't want to do, we do them because Christ commands us to do them. Our good works, our good deeds, they're based in Christ. We do them for Christ, for his glory. It's not about us, it's about him. Now, what does that look like? I'll give you some um, practical examples of that. These are just examples that I could come up with. There are plenty of examples. What does it look like to work for God to work through you? Well, here's some examples. Waking up in the morning and praying for your family because you want them to live for Christ that day and make an impact for the kingdom that day. Planning out your life responsibly so you can be generous with your time and money to those in your community who need you. Desiring to look and live more like Christ so that you can make a big impact in his kingdom. Using your gifts and talents in your church community to continue to move the mission forward. Waking up and seeking Christ, not your fleshly desires, but seeking Christ. Again, those are just a few examples, but it should show you the posture in which our work comes from. It's things that don't make logical sense to this world, but it's not logical. It's through Christ. And when you live that way, you're going to see an impact. You're going to see God work through you. And so, as we come to a close tonight, there's a few things that you should reflect on as, as people, as believers. And there's a few things that you, or a few categories you might find yourself in based on tonight's scripture. A few things that you might have to consider. Where am I in this, in this system? Where am I, or what do I categorize as? Maybe you're at the beginning Maybe you're at the very beginning here and you would categorize yourself as dead in your trespasses. 
I don't know your life. I don't know where you put your authority, but maybe you have not submitted yourself over to Christ yet and you are still dead in your trespasses. The first thing I would say to you is there's still time to repent and and chase after Christ. This night is a perfect night to do that. You do not have to leave here having not said, I'm going to put my authority in you, Lord. So if that's where you're at, then you have an immediate thing to, to focus on. Saying, Lord, I want you and I want nothing else but you. But maybe that's not where you're at. Maybe you're a little further on. Maybe you've put your life in Christ. Maybe you've put in him as your authority figure. You've tried to surrender your life over to him. But there's still some pride there. Maybe there's still some pride seeping up in you where you kind of still do things for your own desires. You do things for your own benefit. You're trying to do things based on what you want to do. Well, then you still have the same command to repent and chase after Christ. But maybe tonight is you saying, Lord, or praying and asking the Lord, Lord, how can I surrender more of my life over to you? How can I be more humble? Lord, show me where I'm being prideful. Show me where I have not surrendered more to you. Lord, help me to leave here tonight with this burden off my shoulders to where I can fully surrender more of my life to you and I can live a life more humble, ready to be refined, to live more like you lived. So that's where you're at. Or maybe you're at the end here where you've humbly submitted to Christ. You come here every week trying to glean information from the scriptures and you come ready to be challenged. But maybe there's this area in your life where you haven't really been ready to fully allow God to work through you. My prayer for you tonight or what I would encourage you to do is pray on your own and say, Lord, where in my life can I put more effort to serving you? Where in my life, what talent can I give? How can I help this community move forward to Christ, move the mission forward? How can I serve you through this body of believers to give more of my life over to you, to surrender more of myself, to truly allow you to work through me? Those are the three categories in which I think we would fall into. The three categories I'm gonna challenge you to prayerfully think through, humbly think through, And then use this next time of worship to pray about. Like always, the altars are open and you're more than welcome to use them for prayer on your own or for someone to come and pray with you. We'd be happy to pray with you on these things. But you also have the ability to just pray at your seats or pray wherever you feel comfortable and ask the Lord to guide you through those three things. So I'm going to pray for us now. Then the worship team is going to lead us in worship. And during that time, I'm going to challenge you to use this moment to chase after Christ and truly try to guide, truly try to be guided into what he has for you in this next season.